LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know a little bit more about our guest. Yeah, Dr. Jeff Orge is the president of Gateway Seminary, formerly in the Bay Area. Yes. But now in, I think, Golden Gate back in the day. Yeah. Uh, And now they're in Southern California. Of San Francisco. But now they've relocated to Southern California. Yeah. And I mean, just think about it. It's it's one thing to build a new building or to move into your first building as a church or to <laughs> do any other sort of change, uh, maybe hire a new COO or hire an executive pastor or, or hire your first, you know, moving from being a solo pastor to having your first other staff member. But I mean, they moved a seminary. Hundreds of miles and a staff, hundreds yeah. of miles. This isn't across town. Yeah. And what's fascinating about the whole thing is, I mean, they're a couple of years into it after after having moved and the seminary keeps on growing. And it's just so cool to see the way that he's been able to lead that change. So he's been on the podcast before. If you listen to episode 231, man, that feels like forever ago. It does. <laughs> We interview him about his book, Leading uh, Major Change, How to Lead Major Change. And today we're going to get into a little bit more, I I guess, the nuts and bolts around leading it. Good deal. Yeah. So he'll reference the book a couple of different times, but it really is something fresh and something new. We've got uh, five new questions for him. And please do give a listen. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And also with Dr. Jeff Orge. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. He's got a book called Leading Major Change. Obviously, Blueprint Coaching this time around is about leading change. And um, I, I, my book is downstairs. It's dog-eared. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, I decided to leave it in my office, and I'm really I'm bummed about that. But I'm pretty sure we're going to feel real good about the time that we spend today. If this is the first time you're hearing about it, the idea with this event is that it's not a conference. It's kind of the new formation of what Pipeline was. And what we basically did was we took the best of Pipeline um, and we merged it with coaching and even more intense coaching experience. So you can learn more about that by texting the word blueprint to the number 888-111. So let's get straight into the questions. And here's the first one. Is change more difficult today than it has been in the past? Well, that's hard to say in terms of how you mean more difficult. I guess it's not any more difficult than it has been in the past for people to go through change because people are basically the same as they've always been. Mm. But what is more difficult today is that change seems to be happening much more rapidly and there seems to be so much more change coming at us. Yeah. Uh, I think just for example about uh, my iPhone, uh, they keep coming out with a new one every year. <laughs> and it, it, it's just the pace of technological change is just an example, just one example of how things are coming at us so much more quickly. So while on the one hand, change is no more difficult for people today than it's ever been because people are basically the same as they've always been. On the other hand, the amount of change and the pace of change uh, really is more difficult today. You know, I was in a meeting uh, just a couple of days ago and we were talking about long range planning. And 
when I started in ministry, you know, many years ago, long range planning meant planning out 10 years. Now long range planning means planning out two years, maybe three years. Wow. And so it, it's just that the, 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 the entire process of change and development, either personally or organizationally, it, it just, the pace is just so much more hectic than it's ever been. Yeah. So do you feel like as change has increased or the pace of change has increased over the years? I mean, actually, how, how do you feel like that has affected the church and how long range planning, planning needs to happen in the church? Well, the pace of change has certainly affected the church because people um, really in a couple of ways, first of all, people are experiencing so much change in other places in their work and their families and their communities that they typically uh, have their change uh, quotient sort of exhausted in those locations. So when they come to church, they really want church to be a place of stability. Yeah. So they're more change resistant at church, not because they don't want the church to be healthy or don't want the church to grow, but they've just exhausted themselves trying to keep up with the pace of change in all these other uh, areas of their lives. And so when they come to church, it's like, man, I just want some stability in my life. I don't want everything to be changing. And church is one place where I ought to be able to hold on to things as they've always been. So that's one way that the pace of change has affected the church negatively. Another way it's affected is that uh, affected the church negatively is that church is changing. And I mean, changing dramatically <laughs> over the past generation. And so uh, that causes people to have, you know, difficulty and struggle with trying to change at church to maintain relevancy or maintain effectiveness. And so uh, I definitely see the pace of change and the, the kinds of changes that people are dealing with having some, you know, negative effect at church and negative effect on churches as they try to plan for the future. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating perspective that because change is going on all around you, that people would be resistant to change or, or tired of change or wanting not there not to be change within the church rather than just being used to it and, and right. going along with it. There's got to be. Fatigue. Right. I, I think that that's a, that, that's an important distinction. The, the people... And I don't really have a quantifiable number on this, but people seem to have a capacity to accept change or to manage change or to, to assimilate change, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and once that's exhausted, they have to recover a bit before they can go into even more change. And so if their company where they work is going through massive change or their family uh, is going through significant change and, uh, and maybe their community in terms of its politics or its ethnic makeup or its economic standing, their community is going through major change, which is also impacting them. Uh, that really exhausts their capacity for change. And so there's not much left over when they come to church and, and they want the church to really be a place of stability and not more change. And so even in the context where you have healthy change happening in an organization like we've had at the seminary, one of the reasons that we've been able to make some pretty significant changes and to have a, a really a prolonged pattern of change as a seminary is that we recognize sort of the ebb and flow of people's capacity to deal with change. So we'll go through a period of intense change and then we'll kind of relax that for a while and realize people have to recover a bit before they're willing to go into the next wave of change. And so uh, having the skill to do that as a leader requires some dexterity that uh, really is based on sensing and understanding the organization and the people within it 
But it's a, it's a real dynamic that you have to be aware of when you're trying to lead change. Just how much change people can assimilate and how much they can take before they have to recover a bit before they can take on some more. I think that's really good and insightful. But I think a lot of people are probably wondering how do you identify specifically what needs to change in your church? I mean, from a priority perspective, you may have a number of thing, different things you want to change, but how do you identify what specifically needs to be changed first? Well, in the, my book on leading major change, uh, I talk more specifically about major change, and I think that's what you're asking. How do you decide what are the big things that really have to be changed at church? Yeah. And, the, the, the first uh, question that you have to ask is, is the change I'm considering essential to the mission of the church? What leaders often do is they dissipate their change energy and the change capacity of their organization on lesser issues that really don't make that much difference. And so then when they get to something of consequence, they've exhausted, if you will, uh, the reservoir of change, toleration, or even change initiation that the church or the organization can handle in the moment, and the change fails. So it's really important not to dissipate your change energy on lesser issues, but to recognize that you have to focus real change on things that really matter to the accomplishment of the church's mission. And I also say in the book that um, that if you decide to make one of those kinds of changes that really is germane to the mission of your church, then nothing can keep that from happening because it's not the change that's on the table. It's the mission of the church that's on the table. And so I, I don't advocate major change uh, very often or more often than necessary, but only when you can answer that first question. Uh, what is this change really essential to the fulfillment of our mission? And if it is, then it's, it's worth whatever you have to sacrifice and whatever has to be done and whatever pain has to be borne because the mission's at stake. And then don't get sidetracked into thinking other things are, um, are essential to the mission and therefore have to be changed. Maybe some things just need to be left alone because they really don't matter all that much. And this is hard for leaders because leaders want things to be done their way. They want things to be done up to their perceived standard of excellence, or they want things to be done uh, maybe the way they did it in their last church or their last ministry opportunity. And those are bad reasons for change. Really, you have to boil it down to that simple question, does this change really matter for the mission? And if it does, then it's time to make this change, and it's worth making this change. And if it doesn't, well, then uh, we can go without it. What are some of those places where leaders tend to spend relational capital or equity and um, energy that are unnecessary when they should be saved for leading major change? Well, the biggest one that I observe in the denomination and in a lot of organizations, uh, in our denomination, I should say, and in a lot of organizations, is this incessant uh, reorganization in order to somehow make things better, but not really making things any more focused on the mission that you're trying to accomplish. Um, I've said uh, reorganization is the uh, default of board executives. Uh, they don't know what else to do, so they reorganize things. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, meaning that they, you know, they, 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 they change the org chart, they move people around in their offices, they, they reallocate some budget funds, or in a church setting, uh, they 
uh, change the worship service or they, they change the building format or they, they want to even change the location. I mean, there are these kinds of things that we do to create the illusion of progress, but then we look at the bottom line and say, are more people being one to faith in Christ or more people being baptized or more of those baptized converts completing a legitimate discipleship process that results in some transformation of life over time? We, 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 we look at those, those kind of inline indicators and sometimes, quite frankly, all of this reorganization and all this change uh, creates the illusion of progress but, not the, but does not contribute to accomplishing the core mission. And so that's that's where I see a lot of energy being wasted. It's just on things that that, that just don't matter that much. And I, and I, and I'm not just casting stones here. I've done this at the seminary. I, I, I have, in moments of bad leadership decision making, invested energy in, in changing some aspects of the curriculum or changing some aspects of our programming or, or our processes that may have made life a little better for us, I suppose, in some ways, but really didn't contribute to the final bottom line of our mission. And so. It can happen to any of us, uh, but we have to be on guard against it unless we waste our energy. And that emotional capital you described or that, that, that change quotient, as I like to refer to it, that can't be dissipated on lesser things than accomplishment of the mission. Yeah. When you look at um, all different types of leaders, some, some, some individuals, depending on their personality, love change or, or love new ideas and things. And, and uh, no, like, no, they don't. No, no, they don't. <laughs> they love change in areas where they want things to be changed. Okay. But you take that same person and you put them in a situation where they like the way things are, introduce change into that situation, and they'll be just as recalcitrant okay. as the most, the most uh, you know, obstinate person. Uh, this is a myth. No one likes change. I don't like it. You don't like it. No one likes change. What we do like are things changing the way we want them to change mm. or things changing the way we think they need to be changed. So um, I, once I learned that, honestly, it changed my whole perspective on how I perceived resistance when I introduced change into our organization. Because I used to, when I started out in ministry, pull, I, I demonized people who, who resisted the changes mm. I was initiating. Um, and said they must, you know, they're being rebellious or they're not following the spirit or they're being undermining of, they're undermining my authority or they're not being responsive to the organization's needs. And now I take a giant step back and say, well, wait a second, you know, why are they resistant to change? Maybe it's just because they like the things the way they are and, and really don't see the need for it. And I've done the same thing. I, I, when I talk about this sometimes uh, and teach on it, I jokingly say that in 1973, the American League introduced the abomination known as the designated hitter to the great game of baseball. And everybody knows how evil that has been. <laughs> well, when I say this, lots of the people in the crowd look at me like I've grown a third eyeball. They're like, what are you talking about? Because they don't care. And frankly, I use it as an illustration because I know most people don't care. Only a baseball purist like myself is still mad about this 50 years later. And so the point of the matter is I don't like that because I don't, didn't think it needed to change, and I still don't think it needs to be changed. Mm. That's the way people are. And so I, I didn't mean to cut your question off, but I just want to say that all of us are resistant to change, and we are all for change. And the people who say, I love change, I like a lot of change, I'm a change agent, uh, you know, people have said that about me as a ministry leader. But the hard reality is I only like change because I'm generally the one sitting in the lead chair driving the change. And so naturally it's going to be more like I want it to be. So therefore I appear to 
to always be the person who likes change. When in reality, uh, when my wife changes something that I don't like at home, I can be just, just as cranky about it as the most difficult deacon who doesn't want his church to change. <laughs> wow, that's so good. That's so good. So that really leads us well into our third question then, okay. uh, is how do you prepare yourself before you lead a major change effort then? Yeah, and you're talking now about how do I prepare myself as a leader to go into this process? Yeah, and let's uh, and let's answer yeah. it on both ways because yeah. as a leader, you've now conv- you're convinced, yes, okay, change does need to happen. So how do you prepare yourself before that major change effort? But also afterwards, um, how do you how do you prepare your people and help them understand the importance of that so they're not resistant? Yeah, that's. That's two big questions. And so let me take the first part first and talk about how you prepare yourself as a, as a leader. Uh, the first thing is you have to be absolutely and completely convinced that the change is at the core of the mission of the organization you're leading. Because once you're convinced of that, and, and when I say you're convinced, I mean that in your understanding of God's leadership, in your consultation and unity with your leadership team or with the elders or the Uh, executive leaders, or whoever is around you that's a part of that leadership group that you're counting on to be able to discern God's direction. When you personally and the the leadership group you're working with, and then if there's a need for a, a larger decision, like by a board or by some other group, like the congregation, but once you're sure that that you know that this is the change that needs to be made and that you at least have the support or the, the, the consultive affirmation with a small group that helps you make that decision and you're ready to take it on to that larger group for a final decision. Once you know, uh, then you're ready to go forward. You know, I, I call these no flinch decisions. In other words, when I stand up in front of a group and say, I have come to believe this is what God wants us to do to fulfill our mission more effectively then I can look them in the eye without having to look down or without any recoil or without any uh, caution in my words, no flinch. I can say it, I can mean it, and they can know that I mean it. So the first step in before you lead major, uh, before you introduce major change publicly is you have to be absolutely certain privately that it's God's leading to accomplish God's mission through the organization's mission and that you can stand up and say that to people without any hesitancy. Yeah, like I call it good. a no flinch decision. That's so good. The, sec- the second thing is, um, when, is that you have to, as you go into this, in biblical terminology, you have to count the cost. And what I mean in this context is you have to lay out what this change is really going to take and be willing to see it through to its real end. And you have to allocate your spiritual, physical, and emotional energy to span the entire time of the change. And I'll just illustrate it with the seminary's relocation. Uh, when we made the decision to move the seminary in, at the end of 2014, uh, or in early 2014, I met with our leadership team and I told them, now look, we're going to announce this change and we're going to move the seminary to Southern California in 2016. But I said, you guys have to understand that you have to allocate spiritual, physical, and emotional energy not to get us through the summer of 2016 when the seminary relocates, but through the summer to the summer of 2017 when we've completed our first academic year in the new location. Because the change that we're making is we're moving the seminary to Southern California. We're not making the change of we're changing to a new building. 
moving the seminary means we have to move to Southern California and prove we can be a seminary down there. Hmm. So the, the change is not finished until the first academic year has been completed. And I told the guys, so the summer we move down there, there'll be no vacation time. There'll be no time off because we're going to be just working 24-7 to be sure that we can move the seminary physically over the summer and get set up and be operational by the fall. I said, so that's, that's a part of what we have to do. So leading up to that time and after that time, you have to take the time off you need and, the, and do the things you need to do to be sure that you're spiritually and emotionally prepared to extend the arc of your leadership all the way to the summer of 2017 before you run out of gas on me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's what happened. When we moved into the new building in 2016, I had many people come and visit the campus in the first six weeks, and they all said a similar thing. Boy, I'm glad. I'll bet you're glad this is behind you. <laughs> because from the outside, the perception was when we got to the new building, got the doors open, the lights on, and the internet working, we were there. We had accomplished the change. But And I wouldn't try to explain this to people. I just smiled and thanked them. Yes, I appreciate your support. We are glad we've come this far. You know, I, I didn't try to go into this with every single person who said this to me. But every time they said it to me, I let it be a reminder to me, this isn't the end. I don't have it behind me yet. I have a whole nother year before I can say, wow, we've got that done. And so, like, for example, when pastors go into major building programs, they often think that when they cut the ribbon and move into the new building, that they finished the job. But that's not the finishing of the job. The change was not about building the building. The change was about uh, paying it off and filling it up with people. That's why you built it. And so you have to allocate your emotional energy to last a year or two after the the dedication to really see yourself through to the end of the change. So when you're getting ready to lead major change, two key things. One, be sure it's according to the mission. And then second, be sure you allocate physical, emotional, and spiritual energy for the duration of the completion of the real change, not just the visible part that other people might see and say that's the end of it. As the leader, you have to know better and you have to extend yourself out to make sure you can survive, if you will, and thrive all the way to the end of the change. I love that. I love I love that point, especially, you know, not thinking that the change is over once the change has happened, but continuing to move that through all the way to the next year and, and following years. But but what about right. individuals um, who are resistant to change? How do you prepare them before you even initiate that major change effort? Well, one of the things that uh, I, I, I mentioned, I talk about again in the book is that there, there are really two kinds of resistors uh, to change. Uh, the one kind are the resolute opponents. And, and this is going to sound harsh, but they have to leave the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're employees, they have to, to find other places to work. If they're church members, they, they have to eventually go to other churches. And the reason for that is not because I want to lose anyone. I, I'm a pastor at heart. It, it cuts me to the core every time anyone leaves my organization for any reason. Uh, but the, the, going back again, the, the reason for the change is because it's at the core of the mission. And if a person is re- resolutely opposed to the change, they're really opposed to the mission. Now, you say, well, this change isn't really that closely connected to the mission. Well, then my response is, why are you making it? Hmm. I mean, why are you making an issue of division of something that isn't at the core of what you're trying to accomplish? But if it is at the core of your mission and there's resolute opposition, then that person can't go forward with you. 
But the second kind of the second category is much more common. And that's simply people who struggle with change. And and the way you respond to them is through pastoral care and discipleship processes. Yeah. And I talk a lot in the book about that people going through change are going through a grief process. And it looks a lot like the grief process that pastors are familiar with when someone passes away. Hmm. Shock, anger, denial, bargaining, adjustment, exploration. These are processes people live through. And so pastoral care and discipleship, helping people grow through change, is a part of who we are as Christian leaders. And so I don't see these people as the enemy or being an obstacle or a stumbling block. I see them as members of my church organization that need shepherding, meaning they need pastoral leadership and pastoral discipleship to help them grow through this experience of change that, that they're living through. So be careful uh, that you don't see all of the opponents in a negative context. Yes, there's a small group of resolute, resolute opponents that have to be re- removed and you have to hold firm because it threatens the mission. But the vast majority of people uh, you have to diagnose and understand where they are in the change process as it relates to their managing their grief related to change. And then through pastoral care and through discipleship opportunities, help them grow through the experience. That's good. So how do you know when to start the change effort in the first place? Like what are the key indicators for that, for the timing? Well, for me, it has always been when there was some significant impediment to fulfilling or to ultimately fulfilling the mission uh, that was before us. And when I was a pastor of my first church, for example, we we filled up our building and we moved to two worship services and we we mostly filled up those. And we had a little, you know, a one acre property and a little building that seated maybe 150. And and once we filled it up twice, um, you know, I, I just said to the church leaders, we, we have to decide what to do. Our mission is reaching the lost. The lost have to have a place to sit down to hear the gospel and then to worship with us when they become saved. And uh, I said, I'm not asking to consider a relocation because of my ego or the need for a nicer building or wanting a new, new uh, property. I'm asking you to consider relocating because just like your family was given a place to sit down and hear the gospel we need to give the next set of families that are coming our way that same opportunity. And and our, our church went through a, a couple of year process of having to work through what that really meant. But eventually uh, they came to own it almost, univer- almost unanimously. In fact, when it finally came to the vote, only two people voted against it. And they never raised another another word. They, they, they gave to the relocation. They helped be a part of it. And I'm reminded of them because the, the second of that couple just passed away uh, last month. And they sent me word of that person's passing because they had remained such a faithful and vibrant member of the church over the years. So their opposition was not, was not uh, they, they were just struggling. They weren't really against. They were just struggling with the whole idea. My point is, how do you know? Uh, my, in that example, uh, it was this that we had tried every other alternative, but we finally came up against an impediment to continued fulfillment of the mission, which in this case meant fulfillment of the mission of having more and more people being a part of the hearing the gospel in our church growing. And faced with that, I knew it was time to, to try to make that change. And so uh, for me, um, you know, I guess I've been leading long enough and I know how painful change is and I know how hard it is to lead major change. 
I don't want to lead it unless I'm convinced that it that, that we have to change something that's a true impediment to the mission. And when you feel that 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 sense of uh, binding or that sense of constriction, you know we've got to go forward. And that's when you main that's the main indicator I think that you know it's time to make a major change. Yeah. That's good. But don't leaders often feel that pinch first um, and then and then act too soon after feeling that that's something is great, an impediment? That, that's a great insight. That's a great insight on your part. And that is exactly the case. Uh, the problem is, well, it's not a problem. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. But the, the reality is leaders see things long before their followers. That's why we're the leaders. OK, yeah. we always see things before our followers. And so uh the, the discipline of going at a pace, uh, at a proper pace, is, is so significant and so challenging. And what I've learned over the years is that that, that that pace of change is really determined by several factors. One, it, 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 the leader needs time to gain credibility with followers. Two, the leader needs time to educate the followers with the same information he has about what needs to change. Uh, the leader needs time for the pressure to build. You know, when we announced the relocation of the seminary, while that was a, uh, in some ways, a stunning announcement to the to the seminary because we had not talked about it publicly at all, the seminary knew something had to happen. The picketers in front of our campus were a good indication that that we weren't going forward with our legal processes of redeveloping where we were, and so. Um, you know, as the years went by and we kept trying every way not to move, the community pressure, the publicity, the news articles, the picketers, our our constituents could feel the yeah. need growing for a change. And so in a, in a church context, you're right. Leaders see things early on and they need to make sure enough time goes by that uh, they gain credibility with their followers. Their followers gain information that helps them understand the need for the change. And that there's, frankly, uh, uh, some pressure allowed to build to produce this kind of change. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I went to that first church and I went there for my interview, I saw it was in a bad location. I saw it was an inadequate facility. But it was only inadequate if the church really grew. So I didn't propose the relocation for the first few years. I waited until the church had grown to the point where the people were feeling the pressure. And they were saying, what are we going to do? Hmm. Well, at that point then... There was greater receptivity to the change. And as I said, an almost universal affirmation of the decision when it was made. Yeah. So you almost have to shepherd that, you know, with patience as, as much as you as the leader know further in advance, you need to shepherd and, and kind of cultivate. And that's a great, that's exactly right. And that's why the primary metaphor in the New Testament for leadership is shepherd or pastor, mm -hmm. because uh, that's really what you're about. And, and some of this is, this is spiritual work. You know, there are best practices I can communicate and there are some patterns of life that I've lived through that I've observed others bleeding through. But part of this is simply discerning how is God leading me and and what is the spirit impelling me uh, or compelling me to do? And, and what are the checks I'm feeling in terms of rushing forward with this or going faster with this? And it's a spiritual work and that makes it both an adventure and also a challenge. Yeah. So you talked about uh, earlier you know, making sure that you quote unquote have enough, you know, change in your pocket uh, mm -hmm. to be able to lead change and make change. So when do you start another change effort after you feel like the current one is, is finished? Well, again, I'll go back to the mission. That's first, the first thing is another change required to carry the mission forward. But then I would also say this, 
if it is, you may be able to go into another kind of change um, fairly soon. It may not be as dramatic as the one you've just come through. But what I mean is, when I led the seminary through the relocation, there were so many wins in that relocation, both for the seminary and for individuals. Compensation went up. People were able to buy houses that had never been able to buy a house before because we moved out of the very expensive Bay Area to a lesser expensive area. Um, the pe people had new work environment that was much more conducive to the kind of education and kind of work that we do. I mean, I could go down the line. Did people lose some things? Absolutely. But their gains in almost every case exceeded their losses and in most cases significantly. So because the, that, that major change was, if you want to say it this way, a big win for the seminary, it sort of propelled us forward to say, well, what change comes next? Mm -hmm. And so our school has continued over the last couple of years to make incremental changes, uh, but not major changes. But we've been able to make a number of those fairly quickly. Uh, because we have sort of a track record now of, you know, we, you know, we can do this. And, and when something needs to be done, uh, we can make it happen. So I think you don't have to wait as long as you may think, because the, the first major change may have given you a lot more credibility for the next change that needs to come along. That's true. And if you botch the first one, you might not be around for the second one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Um, so Dr. Orge, is there any encouragement that you want to share with our listeners as we get ready for the Blueprint Coaching event in March? I would just say that, that leading change is hard, but not leading change is worse. Hmm. God has called us to lead, to discern his mission, to understand how his mission is to be fulfilled through our organization or through our church, and then with courage, to lead people forward to accomplish that. So yes, change is difficult, but leaders have to lead and we need to learn all the skills and all the ability, uh, all the best practices and, and, and all of the techniques that we can. But at the core of it, we have to remember that this is a spiritual work we're doing and there's a spiritual impulse within us that's trying to move forward to advance God's kingdom. And so while it's hard, it's worth it. And I'd encourage guys to stay at it, even if it's hard. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Thanks, guys. Oh, that was so good. See? <laughs> we told them. <laughs> we told Dr. Orge? No, we told people. Our listeners, yeah, that it was going to be it's good. It's going to be good. Yeah, it is. And you are going to want to come out to Blueprint March 13 to 15. We're going to be helping you develop a plan on leading change in your church. So you're not gonna just leave. You're not just gonna come with an idea, great ideas, maybe you can implement here and there, but you're actually gonna leave with a plan, a really large piece of paper that has your plan on it. Uh, you're gonna leave with a plan. So make sure to go to leadership.lifeway.com to learn more about it, March 13 to 15, or you can text the word blueprint to 888-111. But let's say you can't make those dates, March 13 to 15. Well, we actually are doing the blueprint leading change event all across the country throughout this next year. So be sure to, to go text that number, 888-111, the word blueprint to that number, or go to leadership.lifeway.com to see our other dates and locations as well. We'll catch you guys next time.